What is up, Asymmetry? How is everybody doing? Oh, man. Uh, with a new year, fresh outlook, and circling back to old friends and their boneside journey, uh, one of the more prolific producers of plant material in North American history, Randy Knight, joined us in studio. And the purpose of this conversation was to catch up with Randy Knight and more or less try to talk him into field-growing trees again. Uh, we've been working with several of Randy's field-grown trees for a long time, and especially in this repotting season, revisiting some of the better bases, more impressive trunks, and fantastic species that we have at our disposal at Mirai. I recognize we are really, with the loss of Telperion, the loss of Randy's field, um, losing some significant information, knowledge, and quality of material in North America. And uh, I noticed he had planted some seedlings and thought we would come back and just have a discussion about field growing. Really nice to catch up with Randy. Super fascinating conversation as always. Um, and he gives us a lot of insight into the potential future of field growing for him as well as some of the keys to his success over the course of time. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, they're supposed to redo the carpet up here. Because this carpet is, it's seen better times, and we're we're expanding uh, we're expanding the desks to a did, more built-in. Did you fray this, or has this been tafted? I would say this is <laughs> I would say this has been maraed. Okay. <laughs> like this is a this is a community effort, but taft has definitely weighed in heavily on this carpet. Yeah. So, Poppy, it's okay for you to be on the carpet. <laughs> As long as she doesn't poop on the carpet, I, I think it, it's pretty much, I think we've even had dog poop on this carpet, so. Oh, yeah, no, she uh, she left that on Savvy Island this morning. Nice. nice. What were you doing on Savvy? Oh, uh, we went out to look for some otters. Nice. And just, goose season ended the other day and got some permission and basically I'm trying to figure out a way to uh, find arrowheads there too. Uh, are you trapping otter right now? We decided not to because there weren't enough and we were just going to get a lot of nutria ah. in the line and uh, there's no value. I don't like to catch things that I don't have a use for. Yeah. Um, so even though the landowner would like me to catch them, they don't really harm the ground out there. But And, and I actually kind of like them, but they look like a giant rat. Everybody gets squeamish around them and they think they're doing damage. And it's eating corn that we plant for the ducks, right? Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. Huh. So anyway, we looked at it all and said, you know what? Weather's beautiful. Let's let's just skip it. Yeah, interesting. But you've been trapping a lot. I, I did it for a month, and uh, I got my five bobcats, which is how many my tag was for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got four this side and one in eastern Oregon. Eastern Oregon cats were super tough, but I get two thirty-one pound toms, one on each side. Thirty-one pound bobcat is big, like really big. Wow, it's not like record book big but it's like it's not like a dog that's like it's like a dog size huh yeah and they're shit they're tall and they, they're long-legged the, the eastern oregon cat would look just like lynx to most people they actually in the trade they call them lynx cats because they've got such big ruffs on the side of their head and they're uh really long ear tufts uh-huh i'm actually going to have him mounted because he's so huge like as a full animal mm-hmm. or just just full the body skin mount. wow where, where are you going to put that <laughs> that's like a big you know that's like a one big of the, commitment one of the walls of dead things that <laughs> when I get, <laughs> you, you will like this because when I, I get a date over to the house, if, if she can make it through the first room and there's no shrieking and running yeah, for, yeah. for her life, it's like, okay, there's a shot here. Yeah. 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 
I, the 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 last time that I was over at your house, I was like, "Oh wow, we've you fully committed." You know, because I never saw that. I've never seen all of uh, all of those different accumulations of your hunting and trapping career in oh. one space before, and now it's there. It's pretty. It's really cool. A lot of ducks. I just picked up uh, a few days ago. I just got six more, and uh, they were from Mexico. There were. Oh, and I get the black grouse back from Russia, finally. Nice. Uh, it's black, but in the sun, it's kind of iridescent blue and got big red combs over its eyes. And I have some, most of my stuff's pretty exotic. Yeah. Especially for this community. Sure. Yeah, that's and, interesting. And I like that. Yeah. Has that, I mean, it seemed like you recommitted to hunting and trapping and being outdoors over the past, say, three to five years. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Um, we're just kind of babbling right now in general talk. Um, but I was thinking about that within the last couple of weeks. The once I de declared myself retired last year, which really does, I say it more than it probably is. Gonna, I'm going to continue doing what I do because my yeah. work, I love. It's not like work. But I, if, if I'm frugal and I didn't do a bunch of trips and stuff, I don't need to work again. Mm. And, but, you know, my monthly expense is quite low. Yeah. Everything's paid for. And when I was living in that rental, which I lived in rentals after my divorce for a little bit too long, but which was good because I hate the word decompress, but I just kind of rolled out and just with no particular uh, passion for anything, everything just kind of faded and it could easily have lasted a little too long. It did go for a year and a half too long, I think. Mm. And then once I got that house again and started rebuilding it, now I have things to do. My list is longer. A lot of it I don't want to do, but it has to be done. There's still a few things I need to finish, the fireplace mantle and some kitchen cabinets. But um, all of a sudden I'm I'm back. I've got all this stuff to do and things I want to do. And life just, everything's just happier. It's The sun is brighter. The rain is less bothersome. Yeah. And uh, I decided I was going to run a trap line for the first time since 88, uh, last August, September. Got the gear and I knew that <clears throat> it was going to be hard. I was going to work Eastern Oregon and I figured I can probably do this for two weeks before I get burned up. But I made a month. I got in shape a little bit. I lost like 11 pounds and wow. started climbing. Everything is up over there, just like trees. And uh, I was in brand new country in central Oregon. I'd never been in. And the, the thing about bobcats is they're everywhere, but they're not as easy to see and they're not out in the open like a coyote so you don't see them right and they're so well blended though that you could put one in the walmart parking lot and if it doesn't move you don't know it's there mm. they leave hardly any sign they they're alone mostly a solitary animal and so i get out in this new country and i just look for places and i just start wandering looking for tracks or a hare or mostly tracks of course and there wasn't much snow this year and uh toilets and because a cat does cat things and uh God, I just, I was running 18 to 20 hours a day. The the round trip east side was 600 miles. And most times I would go over, work all day, set, scout, spend a night in a motel, do it again the next day and come home late. And then three or four days later, I'd head out and do it again. I, wow. I had a west side line in between. And it was just a new form of treasure hunt. Everywhere I was going, it was like, I'd find sign and it's like, God, shit, how, how do I put a set here? Because a cat... uh mostly just eats what it kills. So a cat won't even go 10 feet out of its way. 
you can call a coyote or a fox or some other animals quite away with lure, but uh, a cat, you you really got to make the set on his line of travel and hope to, with using feathers and other things, because they hunt by sight more than their nose. Um, you're just trying to get that cat to stick around and poke around enough time to put his foot in the in the right place. Uh-huh. And so I missed quite a few. I saw some of the snow. I had 10 inches of snow over there one time, and I, the cat came and he walked all over two of my sets and everything was frozen in. And it's like, ah, ah. <laughs> I had a, I, I put one loop that was a little bit big because there's a ton of uh, cougars over there. And they may have put a loop in that was, I shouldn't say this, but it was bigger than normal. <laughs> and and uh, might have caught in a cougar had it stepped in it. He, he didn't come back on that trail. But uh, there was a little bit of snow for a week, and I come back, and there's cat tracks going down the trail. Turn and said, "Oh, hot damn! I'm gonna get one." And I get over there, and it goes right through it. And that it was a, probably a 15 pound cat walked right through a 13 inch snare loop, stepped right through it, and kept going, didn't break stride. And I looked at that. How does that possible? He didn't even brush it to the side. I thought he must have jumped over, but the snow doesn't didn't lie. It's like yeah. They are so precise. He stepped right through a 13 inch loop, never even brushed it to the side. Didn't. It's like. Wow. And I used to think I was good at this. And I realized that after so long, I was a complete rookie again. And I was totally fine with it because it was just, I, I couldn't not learn things. And so at the end of the day, you know, I make journals, entries. And at the end of the day, I loved catching stuff, but more the by head and shoulders above everything else was going into new country, trying to figure out where they were, where they might be exactly. Mm. And trying to look for the next perfect set. Yeah. Interesting. You know, and I had lots of sets for a long time, and I, I got five. <laughs> so, I, I mean, the the continual theme that you do things, you get more out of the process than the product. Probably. The, 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 the learning process is what what you feed off of. Learning, and I, I may have mentioned it here before. Somebody one time was listening to me talk and said, "Oh, you, you collect experiences." I was like, uh, oh, yeah. "Yeah, I I do, and I I love to learn and." even rebuilding the house, which sometimes gets gruesome, it, it turns out there's always something I've got to learn to make it happen. And I guess that's one of the things that cranks my wheels. But you've rebuilt several houses now. Three. I was just telling Diane to give me a right here that I, I got one more house in me. I decided last winter. I don't know where, how or why, but uh, Jesus. I just do. What, what, what does it mean to declare retirement then? This has been, I have to be honest, confusing for me. Uh, it just means that financially I don't need to work if I don't want to. Gotcha. It, it would impact what I can do. Sure. I'm not going to be going to the Amazon. I'm not going to the jungle to fish for peacock bass again if I truly retire. But um, it's fun to say, and I love to watch people's reactions when I tell them that. And even Todd Schaefer said, I was telling him, you're not retired. <laughs> It's like, well, not truly. <laughs> but he, 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 he said that to me. He said, you hear Randy's retired? I said, I've heard him say it, but I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> I, um, retirement to me doesn't mean getting a beer and picking up a guitar and trying to learn music on the couch. Yeah. yeah. Something tells me that's not really your that's MO. That's not how I'm going to retire now. Yeah. So. With all the... Um, I want to talk to you about field growing primarily because there's such like a, 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 a expansive interest in, in deciduous material right now. Just came out of nowhere from my perspective. But what I did want to talk about in terms of new territory, 
the abundant loss of collecting grounds in Colorado from the fires. And does that mean that does that mean that Colorado as a resource is, is significantly limited now from collected material? Does it mean there's new territory to be found? Like what does that what does that mean when all, all that territory burns that has such good collecting? For me, it means that known locations and hotspots are gone. Yeah. And some of those were just ones that were more readily accessible on a, on the level that I do it. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're uh, collecting for yourself or modest numbers, you know, you want to go out and get 10 trees or something. If you're willing to walk three miles, you can go into ground that's never going to be hunted and probably never will be collected. Yeah. Let's be honest. Um, there's not that much. A few years ago, I, we kind of worked each other into a little bit of a frenzy. Oh, got all the new excitement about collecting. Everybody's out there doing it. Those people have all come and gone, right? Yeah. Hardly any, nobody else is really doing it um, to speak of. The collectors that are out there really, their their game didn't come up. It's it's plateaued or gone down for the most part. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I, I can think of one guy that's pretty active at it and getting some good numbers, maybe two. Their markets are limited. They're, where they can keep them and store them and manage them is limited. Um, so from that perspective, the American mountains are never going to get collected out like they did in Japan. Yeah. Now, if we had 200 or 300 years of that, that could be different. Sure. Um, this year there was a hundred, there was a uh, place that burned up my Engelman spot and I was I was really bummed, but I've been telling you for years, it's going to burn. It's just a matter of time. There's yeah. so much dead wood and just a bummer that it burned when I know that there's thousands of trees out there that were good for bones eye. But you know what? In 50 years, they'll be back. Mm -hmm. That ground is the same ground. Um, it's the cycle of life and it's yeah. the balance of nature. So, but it's a bummer when it happens to your spot. Yeah. <laughs> and... That one fire was so big, it traveled miles, a lot of miles, and burned up some really good Ponderosa country and Douglas fir country. Um, are there more spots? Yeah, you know, it's going to, maybe this is the year that I push into other parts of farther north, you know, 500 miles away and look for a black spruce. Yeah. But the honey hole for Engelman's is gone, long gone. Yeah. And that might be a tough one to replace. Yeah. Um, so having said that, I noticed one thing last year when I, when I first started collecting, there was lots of, um, there was, mm, that's a lie. Let's say in 2008 or 10, they were having kind of a drought back in, in the front range. And there weren't many little trees that were al alive and growing. Uh, and you would see pockets of little trees that had grown up on rock faces and, and then had been burned out by the drought. Uh, this last couple of years, I got into places and they saw thousands of little seedlings growing up in all these places, the next, the next round of bonsai. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the ponderosas aren't nearly as old as everybody thinks and they bark up and trunk really quickly. Sure. But I saw this here in that, uh, Colorado range, um, we moved because of the fire to a new spot and it, it wasn't as good. There's stuff there, but the quality was less and there were fewer trees, but I saw thousands of little trees that had grown up that were 15 to 20 years old or young or younger. Mm. Uh, 
that were on their way to becoming a bonsai with their their growth fried by the the summer drought they had this year even yeah. before the fires and so it's it's a recurring theme and I don't really think that this is global warming or climate change so much as uh, and I believe in that but microenvironment changes yeah we've talked about this before in the 1920s the Columbia River used to freeze over and that's always a running river and had tidal influence here. You could drive muddle teas across it. We haven't seen that since then. That wasn't global cooling. It was just microenvironments that change. Hmm. I was talking to somebody who's a birder recently. There are some years uh, where they call them uh, Bullock's Orioles, or maybe it's a Baltimore Oriole now. Um, they're in Eastern Oregon. There are some years where they come, they would nest here for three or four or five years and they're gone. Um, I, I, they, you know, it was just a migration that came yeah. here. It was the same birds that came back and nested, used the same nest two or three years in a row. And my father's in a big beech tree. They just disappeared and you don't see them around here anymore. Things in nature come and go. There's fluctuations, waves. Um, on the island today, I was with a friend of mine who, <clears throat> I call him my trapping partner, Jim, even though he does most of the nuisance control work. Uh, we we catch beavers sometimes and they chew the bark trees down at Trojan. Mm-hmm. It, you, you, I don't have anything against beavers, but you can't let them chew your park trees down or it'll, it, it's not the same. Or you're not going to have a park. <laughs> <laughs> right. of course, that's correct. Right. Right. And, and he's a bit, he used to raise uh, exotic waterfowl. And so we were talking about all the different kinds of ducks that are here today that weren't around when we were kids. And now, now snow geese, um, are, there's so many of them that not all of them migrate down into the central Valley of California anymore. There's a couple thousand that uh, live on Savvy Island year round and, hmm. There's a flock of several hundred down in the lower river by Astoria. We have all kinds of ducks that uh, didn't used to be here. Um, when I was a kid, wood ducks were really rare. Now they're super common. There, you know, there's some years where there's lots of them and other years where there's not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm just wandering on about things that I see in the natural world that uh, I, I note of, I, I just... You note their presence or their absence. It's like, I wonder why we don't see those anymore. Yeah. It's not because they're gone. Good, good Eastern Oregon. There's all kinds of this and that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you've been observing for so long. You've been, a, you've been an aware observer for a lot longer than most people. Probably. Yeah. So for you to have that kind of, as a kid, to have that reference on wood ducks, like, it's probably not a lot of people. I mean, other avid hunters, I'm assuming, started at a young age and probably were aware and stuff, but... I definitely know via bonsai, I'm aware uh, of a lot more regarding the changes in the the forest ecosystem, and uh, and it does just seem to be an ebb and flow. And there's not, uh, I mean, there's obviously forces at play, but it's it, it's interesting. There's always going to be a force at play. Maybe is is the whole point. Yeah, I think I've mentioned we've talked about this early on. Nurseryman, well constantly say, man, didn't we have a strange summer, a strange winter? Every year, same same comments, uh, but it's always slightly different. Mm-hmm. A lot of rain, no rain. Super cold, freezing rain, didn't happen. This, you know, it's always something, but you can always predict that they're going to say, man, didn't that, wasn't that a shitty season? We just got our clock cleaned. <laughs> and again, the next year and the next year. And <laughs> do you still, do you still, are you still in the Nurserymen's Association? I am. Nice. That's uh, how I get my permits for shipping and so that mm-hmm. I can legally send things to California and all the other, you know, yeah. little inspector comes out and sets his traps and looks at different things and 
tells me I've got this or that. And because I don't really spray for insects at the, at my place, um, we catch all sorts of crazy shit, but never the bad ones. Yeah. So I keep getting, huh. you know, they, and you got to have a pine shoot moth and my sod certificate. Right. There's a couple other things. They, they look for brown snails and you cra- I don't remember. You catch, uh, they ever catch boars and boring beetles? You see those? No, but we don't trap for boring beetles. Gotcha. Um, I know they're out there because I've seen them hatch out of trees before and fly away. Yeah. The little emerald green ones and, and, uh. It feels like I saw, I don't know that I've ever seen one of the juniper beetles, which are kind of root beer colored and shiny yeah. and small, like a, kind of like a ladybug. Yep. A little bigger. We caught a couple of them last year. I guarantee they hatch out because every year I lose a, a limb somewhere on a tree and I go in and it's like, ah, you little ah, barkers. Ah. <laughs> Six of you. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's really a bummer. Things are moving a lot more dramatically, a lot faster this year. I, so the big Walter shipment just went out yesterday for the East coast and mm-hmm. we loaded out about 250 trees, maybe less than normal. But, uh, I, I, it was so nice when I was done, George Biddle was out and hanging with me, went out to the farm and I started uh, reorganizing things and I went back and I leaf bloated and I was looking at things. Jeez, I, I need to fertilize. It, it is honest. There's yep. blood break on lots of the deciduous, almost all. Yep. We fertilized last week. It was time. It was just like, man, uh, potentials were growing, leafing out at the end of January. Uh, all the deciduous are pushing, larches are pushing right now. And the, I mean, it's early March. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's always whenever this happens, it's like, gosh, I hope April and May hold up because this is going to be a bummer <laughs> otherwise. It's, it's freaking 75 degrees in the greenhouse today. Oh, I can believe it. It was like 58 or something yesterday, yeah. today too. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, but it is. I think they're calling for more rain again. Yeah, they are. It, it uh, you know, I I think about when you used to have the field, and and you'd have to kind of deal with with these conditions. And this was a these kinds of conditions when you were digging in the field every spring were a nightmare because it was shortening your digging season and capacity to get trees out of the ground safely or whatever. It just compressed it. I mean, I feel that pinch with repotting, but. Uh, at your new place, y- you have some larch stuck in the ground and some things that are kind of growing. And and uh, for a long time after you finished with the field, I didn't know if you'd ever revisit it. Are you thinking that you might grow again? I want to re- I want to grow again, and I I just can't help myself. I mean, yeah. you, you see that corner of my yard? I got four hundred <laughs> seedlings in it for two years. <laughs> I have them crammed yeah. in so tight that yeah. I didn't use individual tiles. They're laying on one by eight boards. Oh man, a tree every six inches. And it's so you're into it. it. You're you're motivated. Yeah, I, a guy can't help myself. I, I fucking love to. Yeah, I love to touch trees. Yeah, and uh, I was just looking at them earlier because I got all those big olive stumps now. Right. And I pruned a bunch of stuff last year, but uh, most of those trees went in. You know, it's like smaller than a pencil. Uh, at the ground level right now, lots of them are half to three quarters of an inch and it's two years. And the first year they don't do anything. Yeah. So last year they did well. If I fertilize this year and let them grow, I'll probably let them grow and it'll, it'll be crowded. But I, I would expect I'm going to have over one inch, inch and a half trunks and probably at the roots, well, it might be two inches. These are larches primarily? There's uh, larches, European hornbeams, trident maples, Japanese maples, some stewardia black pines too. Are you thinking that you're going to try to search for a plot of land to grow in? I should. He's uh, back, baby. 
<laughs> I knew it. I, I would like to. All right. I was just doing hey. something the other day thinking, I really had to look around and get my hand on some hedge maples. Yes, yes. <laughs> so this oh, is, it was you. You sent me the picture is, of the base on this that. Is what, like, this is what oh, happened, God, I should be doing that. Yeah. Put them yes. in the ground, and the next thing you know, two years is gone, and you got 400 trees that are on their way to being something. Absolutely. That hedge maple... Uh, did you see it in the greenhouse, by the way? I have not. Uh, we should we should go look at it. It's really impressive. It came out of a monstrosity of a pot. Adam and I took it down, you know, exposed another three to four inch. Because my skills have evolved as well. You know, the last time I repotted that, I never in 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 my I never could have envisioned that th- four inches of nabari was buried underneath that thing. Was that the tree that came from Diane? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Looked at long, it. long ago from Wee Tree. Yeah, and I think. You know, she worked on it, did some stuff, but I don't think they were ever able to sell it. It was... It's too big. It, yeah. It's too big. And, and and it, you know, to be honest, it is one of the densest, heaviest trees in the garden. I mean, it's a monster. Oh. Uh, which which I think must be just a characteristic of hedge maple. But as I was going down through that, you know, uncovering this beautiful nabari, I mean, uh, just really well worked, really well distributed. Uh, I was down at Tom Roberts' place in yeah. Coos Bay. Uh, and he had some of the Fudo whips that we twisted up long ago that he had grown out in the field over the past four, five, six years. Uh, and a few of the larches that you had passed on to him, which were sort of the leftover scragglers mm-hmm. from all of your larches. And, you know, they've been growing for four or five years in his field. And it was like, God, it's... I don't think anybody, because now in the modern era with the distribution of information the way that it is now with podcasts and live streams and and whatnot, you know, we can talk about what you grew and what your field growing operation looked like. And at the time, I think you probably felt undervalued, but it's like doing that with the hedge maple and seeing these larches and junipers and stuff that, that were sort of the tail end of beginning the process before you, before you, uh, got out of field growing for a while. It's like, this ultimately like your field was the best field in North America. I, I, I don't really think there was anything else that compared. And I, that's not to be disrespectful to Telperian Farms. Telperian Farms produces a lot of interesting material. The diversity with that level of quality that you grew with was was singular to Randy Knight. How did things look at the coast at Tom's place? They look good. Tom's working really hard. He's working really hard. Uh, different environment and conditions entirely, uh, which brings about different nuances. Um, yeah, the coast is an environment I don't understand very well but tom seems to be able to make it work and work for him very well and he's he's grown some good stuff and i'm gonna guess that things grow quickly there they grow very fast yeah yeah that'd be my guess he he grew some strobus some pinus strobus eastern white pine that were big chunky great movement just really impressive oh nice yeah and his junipers are quite short and stout and and tremendous movement um and then he's got a lot of good deciduous. He's got a, some great Korean hornbeam. He's grown some Zelkova, Serata, um, Celtus, uh, which has been, I think, Celtus, whatever the North American Celtus is. It's like a hackberry, right? It is a hackberry, yeah, but I, I've Celtus occidentalis or, or something like that. Yeah, he's got, he's got good stuff. But you started growing on a geodisc, right? I mean, that was your methodology for getting the bases to be so wide. Or was it something else? Tiles. Tiles tiles and i put the geodisks around the bases just to keep the weeds away from the lower uh, limbs because you know that was you, you, you remember it was like it would be a hay field i yeah. would have to mow that a few times a year and the first time would i'd run the brush hog down through there and try not to cut more than 100 trees down 
<laughs> and all that wild mustard. Oh yeah, nice. that vegetation would be three feet tall in yeah, May. Yeah, it was hardcore. And uh, so that was really just about trying to preserve lower limbs because when they get to a certain height, you know, it just get, would shade out. Yeah. And it, it was too big to really be on top of it. But at the same time, when we, t- we talk about this, that's probably one of the things that worked so well. And I was well aware that not if I put a hundred trees in, you only get 30 or 40 really stellar trees. Mm-hmm. There was going to be a lot there that had great bases, but they look like telephone poles for 18 inches. And you know, what can you do with that? Yeah. Cut it off and hope it buds. Lots of things don't bud. Um, but I was super happy with that system just to grow a lot mm-hmm. and it meant a lot of pruning. And we're, as we're talking about it now, if I was going to regrow again, what would I do? I'd do basically the same thing. I wouldn't be worried about every tree being a perfect bonsai tree. Yeah. I, but I would also have to set myself up where space wasn't at a premium, right? I can see all in places in Japan, you, you put a tree in and space is so limited. You want everyone to be perfect. And yeah, probably it becomes a little bit too precise and I'm not a perfectionist. I've determined I'm yeah. pretty close in some things like my woodwork. I want that to be perfect on a, on a growing a tree. You know, I'm okay if it, if it gets messed up or, you know, occasionally the weed whacker does it and you're going to lose some stuff that way. Yeah. But you also get tremendous diversity mm-hmm. in different growths and there's a lot of genetic difference between the trees, but that's probably one of the reasons, um, that I had trees because there were, there was all, all manner of trees, stuff that didn't fit the book, others that were looked perfect, uh, but typically those would get picked at an early age. And so they never really had the chance, you know, outside bend limb, outside bend limb, those trees never make it past five or six years because they get chosen. And so every year you're look, you're trying to create something better with leftovers that everybody else looked at and it's like, well, that's, that's a dog still. Yeah. Let's cut it here and see what happens. And, and you just start following new lines and which is probably what made it look more like a Yamadori yeah. bonsai field than, because you've seen the Japanese fields, which are tremendous, but they all look the same basically, right? Well, that's what I think when you talk about space is a premium, everyone's got to turn out and then all of a sudden they all look exactly the same. And I think that's, that was also, when I first met you, you called yourself a farmer. And I thought that was really, <laughs> I thought that was really interesting too. <laughs> I freaking, I moved back because you grew up here, you lived in Portland a variety of places, but from Portland, it's my understanding you moved back here to be a farmer was what you told me when I first met you, which I was just <laughs> like, well, this is interesting, you know, but, but, I but it, it was, it was agriculture. Yeah. And nur- oh, I mean, I mean, I guess nursery culture, which was, which was interesting, but I think like seeing, seeing your, because you used to raise pigeons. Mm-hmm hunt a lot all that stuff and then the pigeons you know sort of disappeared and hunting waned and it it was almost just just collecting for a while and now i you've got pigeons again you've got trees that you're growing outside in your front yard (laughs) you're you're hunting and trapping in it's like are we gonna get to see the second iteration of randy's fields i i feel it coming my my koi live in a swimming pool in the backyard because they live on a rock pile yeah i'm I'm building a koi pond with Big Daddy Gam be later this summer. Are you? It, well, oh, we'll wow. see if he actually pitches in. But we're uh, I'm going to build an above ground four by six ponds and uh, nice. get him out in the summer. I can look at him over the deck and shift the pigeon loft to the under the shade and probably make it bigger because 
last year I had eight or 10. Now I've got 42. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, those, uh, they get busy. Yeah. <laughs> at, at what, at what point, at what point does, does expansion of all of these different interests, uh, become too much weight? Cause you've been through it once where you've expanded and contracted with your interests and the size and the scope. I mean, you had a lot of responsibilities when I first met you. You had a lot of pigeons. You had a big growing field. You had a lot of Yamadori. You had a lot of things going. It necked down to a, a, a very streamlined number of things that you were doing, even in terms of a home to take care of. Now it's necking back up again. What what changes this time? When does it become not so fun? I won't know until it happens, but when that happens, I'll be quite aware. But you can usually sense it coming. This kind of goes back into the kind of ties back into my earlier thing of of all of a sudden I, I I'm just back, you know, my passion for life is just gone back. This will sound a little bit uh well I'll just say it. Um I do really well with not having a significant other. Mm-hmm. I mean I like like women and like to spend time with them. But not having all the responsibilities and the kids are out of the house and gone and I don't have grandkids, which I'd be okay with, but I'm okay with not. Yeah. I just look at child, that, that whole thing was a phase and it was a great phase, but I moved on. You're in that phase right now. Yeah. And everybody reacts to it differently. The last gal I spent a lot of time with, um, she was all about her kids and grandkids and that was her circle of life. I think that was suffocating to me. Good kids, great kids, good grandkids everything about it, but, um, I didn't have any freedom. Yeah. And I was, was like, you know what? I worked pretty hard and long, harder than most people I feel to be able to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then to not be able to do it because we babysit kids on Saturdays. So most of the summer weekends, we can't go for a weekend trip. Um, it's like, ah, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I, it's beautiful weather. I want to go fly fishing or I want to go camping or I want to go whatever. Yeah. Rafting. Um, and the fact that I have more free time, this has come up before too in every relationship. God, why are we, they'll edit this out if they want. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like uh, when you work for yourself and don't, ha- don't have a normal eight to five job uh, and your partner does, your partner is going to hold that against you. That's going to become a thing because yeah. it's like, what, what do you mean you're, you're going to sleep in till nine? What'd you do today? I took a nap. You took a nap. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I still worked 12 hours today, <laughs> <You're> right? Right. <laughs> right? You drove to Portland, worked for seven and a half and drove home and all that. And But, you know, yesterday I got up at seven and I worked until 9 p.m. Yeah. And uh, I had lunch a couple of times. And uh, what did you do? Oh, that's right. You were home at five. <laughs> right, right. And uh, so that was always a problem. And I, I, I think that it could be overcome if the conditions are right and you have the right partner and everything just melds but I wouldn't, I'm not holding my breath. For yeah. That. So one of the things I've learned in the year since, uh, I was last kind of tied, partnered up is, uh, I can do what I want when I want. And that did not wreck my ambition or my productivity. And, and you know me, there's a lot of stuff that I do. I like to work really long and hard at it and then have a couple of days where I don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when will it become too much? My house is mostly done. It's a small yard, so it can't get too much bigger. The farm is, you know, in that half acre I lease. There's, By the way, there's still 700 trees there this year. Last couple of years after the Walter shipment, it looked like a, it looked 
devastatingly empty plucked chicken i was about <laughs> like to a, say that like word. a plucked chicken i asked i asked uh, adam <clears throat> i said how's it look he's like i gotta say there's a lot of stuff still there and it's like oh good i gotta get out there i haven't been out i haven't seen the olives yet i oh you're gonna <sighs> like the olives some kid just sent me a picture of some olives that were collecting in in california and he didn't have the heart to tell it send him a picture of mine because like mm, it's not the same buddy yeah, I got those same uh, pictures too. Oh, and did you? It's like, well, I thought, yeah. Say, well, it's like, yeah, good start. Got mm-hmm. to do something, but it's like, oh, yeah, you're going to get your clock cleaned. If you... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, having said that, where was they? Oh, yeah. The last couple of years, it would be all empty, barren, black mat. And it's like, it would be kind of the uh, inspiration for I need to get busy and get out there and do it. This year, there's a ton of stuff left over, and I got a lot of Telperian. You know, there's still a couple hundred. Telperian deciduous trees that I salvaged after the fires mm-hmm. that need to be dealt with. Um, what are you going to do with all those? Sell them. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Actually, you know, I'm going to keep eight or so for myself and I've got another group of about 25 or 30 that are all potential keepers, but I only need three or four. But we, I think we talked about this one time. When I looked at all the stuff that was down there, I realized that if I want to keep, because I, Oh, my other good deciduous trees. I've got one trident maple left out mm-hmm. of all that field stuff that you keep working on for me yeah. and making better. Everything else, at some point, the money got enough. It's like, I'll let it go. I'll get another. And then pretty soon I didn't have any more. <clears throat> so most of these Telperian trees, I'm guessing, are 10 to 15 years old. Yeah. So even if I started with what I've got now, uh, that's a lie, because I actually have six trees in my side yard that I kind of cherry picked and put in the ground. <laughs> so I actually have some little gems for me. Uh-huh. Anyway, I looked at all that and I thought, you know what, this is the perfect time to set some things aside and I can rework them and grow, grow them out. And m- mostly I got to fix the roots on their trees. I, I love the Telperian stuff, but it's different than mine. Yeah. And the roots aren't going to be as good. Of course, we're really just talking about trunks and regrowing most of the limbs. Um, which is just a timely process. But now that I got 15 years of trunk development, you've seen some of them. I got a lot of six and eight, 10 inch trunks out yeah, there. Yeah. And uh, I, I I can turn these, probably with your help, over the course of the next five, 10 years, some of these can turn into really good trees. Yeah. I don't need a whole lot, but if I want to keep five, it means I should start with 15 or 20. Sure. Y- you know how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, I really learned about the time frame from you. Kind of in 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 the way that you handled and approached the field and approached the growing and you know five years was not a small time was 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 not a significant time frame for you when I first met you so like, yeah five more years in the field that'll be world class and for me at the time it felt like an ex- astronomical number and now ten years <laughs> in starting my eleventh year in in April at Mirai it's like yeah no it's five years goes pretty quick <laughs> so uh, quick. Yeah, it's it, I the age that I see on some of the trees at Mirai now in in ten years, it's like ah, I never. When I was a kid thinking about doing bonsai professionally, going to Japan, it's like I'll never get. You know, North America is so far behind. We don't have the age. We'll never get this kind of patina on trees. And it's like, well, you know, in less than ten years, it happened. I don't, I I, I don't know what else to say. It 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 it's been shocking. But that was something that you had been telling me all along. And it still is interesting to hear you talk about that in terms of, you know, you got 10 years on a trunk and we're going to regrow the rest of it or put it back in the ground and, and add to it and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's a really, the, the, the interest in broadleaf trees right now, I've never seen anything like it. And so what, why? You, 
this is my assumption. This is my guess. I don't know. People that listening might have their own uh, perspectives. I think the much like in Europe, the Yamadori boom that has happened over the past 10 years was this identity shift in North America because we used to import Satsuki azaleas and really shitty Japanese white pines. Um, and there were a lot of import businesses that made their money uh, doing such. And then importation stopped. And then Bonsai lost its identity without this continual epicenter or flow of material. And then people like yourself came along and started collecting and and people like Michael Hagedorn and myself and other individuals went to Japan and started learning and people like Boone and uh, other people started teaching. And then suddenly, you know, there's this uh, enhanced knowledge, ability and availability of material, but it was, it was wild material. And so there were, you know, you think about the growing operations. I mean, the field that you had, if it existed right now, would be i would think at least from the what from what i see happening it would be the primary spot in north america for people to come find material is that crazy it, it, it's really weird it's really weird because it was very hard to make a living as a field grower and i'm sure chris at telperion might even say it's you know 20 years in what do you say broken even maybe or just just possibly started to think about breaking even like yeah i, I assume i it, i'm free to say it because he told me but when I was down there, he said, uh, within just the last year or two, I said, how are you doing all this? He says, we're, I think we've broken even now. Mm-hmm. And he was a long time. It was 20, almost 20 years. 20 years, yeah. yeah. Now he was significantly more investment, you know, and mine was way more labor. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because he had a full-time employee and they worked on it and you saw how his farm got away from him too. Yeah. You go down there today, there's a lot of 30 foot trees there. That yeah. It's like, oh man, that's. You know, it's too big now. Yeah. You can't even really chump, you couldn't even really trunk chop that and have good success. Well, I mean, the grow bla- the the grow bags blew apart, you know, trees ran into the ground and suddenly you lose the containment and yeah, success. It's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's an inevitable, it's, uh, it's almost like a, a metaphor, you know, the na- na- nature's always going to find a way to, to sort of regain its, mm-hmm. its upper hand. They were the ones who used the geodisc and Gary Wood uh, worked with them a lot and they did some ingenious stuff. When I would look at some of their something, damn, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's some, you know, everybody comes up with their own good ideas, but the geodisc planting the tree on a geodisc inside the root bag to spread the roots, mm-hmm. um, was a, that worked pretty well. Um, I we're don't still think pulling them out of the last ones that we have. You get up right under the base and there's still a geodisc there. Is there? Yeah. And in general, on the deciduous trees you've got from them, do you find pretty good nabari? Or is it... Um, let me think here. Third good, third bad, third junk? I would say so. Yeah, I would say deciduous. It's 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 a little bit mixed, but I would say with the conifers, it's, it's it was highly effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, you know, looking at... And I think, I think... But I think this is the interesting thing, too, is I think there was a consistency with Telperion... And that's still much like you touched on how you grew. You grew on tiles, but you grew a lot of diversity. You grew a lot of seedling diversity, which gave you genetic diversity. Uh, And you didn't manage it as closely. So there was a a, a super high 
aesthetic diversity to your material that had quite a bit more of a wild feel than any other growing operation I've seen. I remember you telling me about that early on and I didn't really see it mm -hmm. and I'm more aware of it now. Yeah. And yeah. Like, so looking at that hedge maple, it's like, that's a real hedge maple. You know, that, 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 that's a gigantic tree in miniature in my mind, as opposed to uh, a formal bonsai. It's a, it's a real tree. And that, and that's, that's fascinating to me to see that. Hmm. Yeah. You know, now that we're talking about it sitting here, I, I can see myself getting all excited and a little bit hinky. Saying, <laughs> Good. That's the oh, goal. God, that would be. Start growing that again. Be, that'd be fun to just have a field of that stuff to be in. And you used to see me dig. It was, I, I'm not a. It was an event. I, I am not a, a bonsai marai gentle no. bonsaiist. No. I, uh, I would be more of the, I, I hate to use the word hack. <laughs> But I, I move stuff quickly, and uh, I would pop those trees out, and I'd clean them off. I was teasing Adam about the uh, hedge maple. I said, so when you guys were cleaning four inches, did you use the sawsaw? <laughs> and I'm, I'm joking. God, no. <laughs> but this is this is what's required. You know, you know, this has helped me diversify my understanding of the roles in bonsai, though, because... It it really is, you know, at some point, like you're you're the 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 heavy handed approach is how you get things done. It's how you grow things. If if you're trying to do stuff alone and you only got so much time, you're gonna find ways to cut corners that still work without massacring yeah. your stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but you almost have to. You almost have to understand and accept that the growing process is a little bit crude. That's not the time to be super refined in your in your approach and to you know, you don't have to have beautiful wiring to grow good bonsai you, you have to be growing a lot of trees at least that's my impression you, you no I matter how so. hard you try you're, you're still going to have a lot of attrition and there's a lot of trees that no matter what you do are just never really going to you could put a ton, ton of time into a specific tree and it's still just going to be a a so-so tree right yeah and at some point you've got to look at it a funny little man in the nursery industry one time told me he says just remember you can't keep them all Mm. And you remember when you first came here, you're like, and, and Jason too. And I just don't understand how you could sell these trees. And yeah. it's like, huh, I, I'm okay with it. And, uh, that was, that's just how I rolled. And it's like, uh, the, the process, the collecting, the nurturing, the getting things up and started, mm -hmm. that's, that's the joy, the passion, the thrill for me. And without thrill, then it wouldn't, it, why would you do it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I punched a time clock in a mill after after high school for a year and it made me realize, you know, I'm, I'm not really fit for the time clock world. Yeah. And it took me a long time to work out of it, but yeah, that, uh, God, just the joy of going out into the field, especially at this time of the year. I remember Diane Lund used to come and she would pick maybe a hundred, 120 trees and it, she'd start in the row and I'd start digging. And by the end of the day, I'd have at least 50 or 60 of those dug out or even all hundred and we'd have them in her trailer in her van and she'd be driving off with them and we'd pull them out. And you know, she and I always used to joke, I'd look at her and say, there's no good trees left in the field. And she'd <laughs> laugh out loud. She'd say, you tell me that every year and I come back and I get a hundred more. Yeah. <laughs> and you're pulling them out and we would find things like that every now and again, you'd pull a, a trident out or something. It would have really crappy roots and say, you don't want this. We're going to burn it. Yeah. Throw it away. It's not, let's find another one. And sometimes it'd be, but the top is so perfect, we're going to go with it anyway. And, and then other times we'd dig uh, junk trees out that I was going to throw away or move. And it's like, God, it's a terrible top. But look at the base and the nabari. And it's like a two-inch trunk and eight inches of, of root mass. And it's only two inches deep because it's on the tile. And it's like, 
okay, we, we got to give this one another shot. We're going to hack it off and hope it buds. Yeah. And, uh, it was, that was just fun. That was a treasure hunt of its own kind, right? Yeah. Unco- the digging process of uncovering what you couldn't see. You said Diane was one of the best people that you ever worked with in terms of working over a field and finding, finding the material. She had a good eye. She could go down through there and pick good trees and I'd, I'd walk along and I'd see that little, those, uh, even from a hundred feet away sometimes, cause, uh, yep, I knew she was going to get that one. Mm-hmm. She'd just go through thousands of trees and, and hit the very best. And she was, the, the key was she was decisive and, and we've talked about this before. When I watch other people sometimes work specifically, let's say trees, they'll worry about, well, God is, what, should I prune it here? Should I prune it there? What is it? It's like, just, just do it, you know, just quick, decisive, move down the row. You got hundreds of trees to prune and uh, you get pretty good at it, but that quick, that quick thinking, you, you look at it, analyze it, boom, cut here, cut here, cut here, move on. Mm-hmm. And that, that's probably an acquired skill, mm-hmm. but uh, the same thing, you know, we, as far as selecting trees, we talk about the Japanese professionals and other people that would come out to the farm, even come to the can yard now and look at the collected trees. They get overwhelmed and shut down and yeah. pretty soon you get people that need to get, they want to get 30 trees you get four or five good ones, and then pretty soon they're picking crap, and it's like, okay, I'm, we're going to have to help. And and I would, and I'd say, you know, I think you should do this and do that, and you're kind of delicate and polite about it, but you could literally see them making, they just lost their minds. Yeah, poor their decisions. Ability to, yeah. Their ability to focus and be decisive. Calibration, the cal, the, the capacity to calibrate in that in that overwhelming state is really, uh, I, I, and it, it's, hard, it's hard to explain. Like, I don't know why you don't have that, you don't have that mechanism, you know, where, where, where you lose your, your center in terms of your visual expectation in the scale that you function at. But that's, I think your unique capacity. One, one of the unique capacities is that you never really lost sight of your, you never lost your bearings in the whole thing. And that was like pretty impressive. Yeah. And that probably just luck. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I learned it. I don't know, but probably just, uh, just shit house luck. Yeah. Yeah. I will. Yeah. It's good to have shit house luck. Yeah. You should take luck anytime you can get it. <laughs> luck is good. Yeah. 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 Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I, I think, but it's frustrating for me too, uh, to think about, you know, the, the change. And I, and again, I don't know what the change is. People come up to me or, or, or reach out to us with Mariah live and they're like, you guys are doing a lot more deciduous work now. And it's like, well, we're doing deciduous work because every survey we ever put out there, any questions or, or the emails that we field are people saying, can you do more with deciduous? Can you teach us more about deciduous? Can you, uh, you know, and, and the, inf- the the questions are about deciduous. And it's like, well, listen, you know, I, I studied with Kimura. Mr. Kimura worked with conifers. Uh, he worked a lot with deciduous and people just never saw it. And, and it, even if he didn't work a lot with deciduous, I, I saw a lot of deciduous. I was around it. I was immersed in it. Uh, and, and trees are trees and the photosystem is the photosystem and the energy positive times are the energy positive times and the nuances, those are the things that you have to work out. But doing high level deciduous work isn't rocket science. It's not rocket science. It just takes some fundamental pieces of understanding to be able to do it. Why everybody or why the general communication and interest is in broadleaf trees right now, I don't know. But uh, 
I also find it to be really interesting and engaging to be making that shift right now too. Not shift, but addition, I would say, because I'm as passionate about the coniferous species as I've ever been. But adding that adding that extra little bit of cursive to the garden at Mariah has certainly diversified what's here in a positive direction, I think. So when you say that uh, there's this brand new interest in deciduous, does that come with a lessening of interest in the conifers or is it just additional new expanding interest? I don't think you ever lose interest in conifer. I don't think that interest ever goes away. So it didn't, it didn't shift. It's just a, a new folder. Does not seem to have shifted. No, it just seems like there's an expansion. Seems like there's uh there's uh and, and maybe it, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know how much impact Mariah has, uh, but I sense it has a big impact because of the live streaming platform and the education and the, the membership, you know, continues to expand and it's, and it's a positive community. I think that's, I mean, we try to be positive and try to give people the capacity to, to be successful with knowledge, but, you know, adding deciduous to that, it's, it, 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 it feels intuitive to, you, to a degree. What is your membership up to now? You know, I don't, I don't keep track of those figures, honestly, but it's, um, it's getting to a size now that we really need to continue to improve our systems to accommodate and live up to. It continues what, to grow then. It does continue to grow. Yeah. It continues to grow. And, and, and we continue to work at it though. It's, right. you know, it's a thing that, uh, the team works hard at and I think they're, they're very good at what they do and, uh, the community continues to grow and be supportive. And so it's like, Oh, so let's, let, let's keep spreading positivity and goodness. And, uh, if adding broadleaf information is, is fruitful for people, I'm more than happy to do more bonsai. That's, that's what I love to do. That's what, it's what drives me still more now than ever before. And are you getting back into the, into the workshop and working on trees more or less in between, or is it just so sporadic? I would say that I've wired more trees in the past. I've wired trees, more trees in the past 90 days than I, than I have in that stretch of time in the past three to four years. So this would be good. It's good. It's good. There's a lot of responsibility with Mariah for sure. Uh, it didn't help that, you know, some asshole decided to destroy my house. That, that, <laughs> that one really, that, that was really uh, a change of reality that although I'm more than happy to roll with the punches and figure out how I turn lemons into lemonade, not having the option and just, just having a place I built with my bare hands destroyed was, was pretty upsetting. I, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Anyways, you, you, yeah, you know more than most people about <laughs> it. So, but it, but, um, I think that reformed my reality. I think it further, uh, gave me perspective of of what is important and what is pretty much unnecessary or lacks a lot of value and significance. And uh, ultimately, it's really changed my relationship with Mariah as a facility because now um, this is a place that I come to work, and, and that and that is very different than what I've experienced to this point. Adam was sharing some of those insights over the last. He's been staying with me for 10 days. And the last time you and I really spoke was, uh, after the incident mm -hmm. and, uh, I could tell you were down and kind of in a, in a fog and I, and I was a little bit concerned. It's like, man, I wonder, wonder how he'll pop out of this, but a sense that you've got energy and you're all about this now and in, ch man. change is inevitable, yep. but you know that I've always worried that you push yourself right in the edge of burnout Yeah, and yeah. just building a, 
a hamster wheel so big that at some point you just say, oh, it's too much. Yeah. It, well, just like you're asking me, at what well, point I'm does it become too much? I'm asking you for a reason. I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> like, listen, there's a lot of wisdom there that I'm trying to draw from. You've always been somebody that's given me a lot of feedback. Um, there, there will come a time when you have too much of something yeah. or it's just, and when you need to cut back, it's like, what don't I enjoy? What's not profitable? And it, it'll be pretty clear where you start to make the cuts. Yeah. And then you, you're just like pruning off extra limbs, right? Let, let's remove this, this, and this. Now my plate's not as crowded and I've got more time. It yeah. all boils down to time management, right? Yeah. And then, and uh, your relationships with people. And now you've got a son who is approaching an age where he, his demands on your time aren't going to go down. And you'll you'll learn ways to juggle it yeah. and manage it. But, yeah. um, you know, 60 years from now, you're still going to be, and what am I going to do today? Is it applesauce or is it the canned peas? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I feel I feel like I I have to be honest. I feel like um, I don't know if people have I I, I you know it's, it, it depends on what people believe. I I don't know if 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 there's like a pre pre predestined reality for people or whatnot. But I do tend to find that there's a consistency in my interaction with the universe. This is super woo woo, but I'm going to go here. Uh, there's there's sort of a predetermined manner in which i engage with the universe flow of energy karma destiny whatever you call it and that is uh it tends to uh highs and lows i tend to run in the middle of all things just you know that's where i will come back to so you know uh i feel like the universe has been good to me D d despite dealing with I, I would say a lot of uh, extraneous circumstances i don't in any way feel uh, upset or shortchanged and, and, and it, and it generally works out to where I could make a decision that would completely and totally royally, uh, derail me. And, and somehow the universe has seemed to protect me to this point. So, you know, house got destroyed, but other things have worked out in, in ways that I could never have imagined. And, and, and so it's like, okay, all right, I, I, I can run in that middle ground, you know, I'm okay being there. Hey, in it. So you create most of your destiny, and uh, when when things go sideways, it's really it's up to you to uh, get it back on the road again, right? Yeah. And deciding how you're going to do it, and whether you're going to your glass is going to be half full or half empty there. And sure. So you you just have a high energy level, and you're you're ambitious, and uh, that cures all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Look at the guy or the person that's not ambitious and is like, God damn it, the house is destroyed. I give up. Mm -hmm. I'm moving, I'm doing this. And or you need to say, that sucks. This is how we're going to work beyond it. Yeah. It's out of my control, but I'm going to fix that. Yeah. To the extent that I can. Yeah. And uh, you, you, I have seen you run down and burned out, but uh, I know that in one part of your life, I don't know much about it, but I know that you're back in the game again and that's got to sure. feel great. Yeah. You, you knew that I used to worry about that. I would say, you know, <laughs> dude, you the, should really get the out her, there and the hermit shake on the, the hill. tree. Something <laughs> will fall out. You'll see. The hermit on the hill. <laughs> yeah, you did used to worry about the hermit on the hill. Yeah. No, and that was kind of a thing, was it not? You? I, the I, hermit at the end of the road. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it was a thing. <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think I very much can exist in solitary yeah. uh, scenarios. It doesn't mean that it's good good for anybody. Maybe it's good for some people. You're you're a lone ranger. I can be a lone ranger. Um, I guess have having uh, 
having somebody to bounce ideas off of and somebody that unconditionally loves you is a, is a pretty pretty cherishable thing at and and right now in life it's it's been very valuable for me to be sure yeah that can help level out a ton of rough spots yeah it gives you something to look forward to right yeah right and you have enough things going on that even if the world's shitting on you there's always going to be a bright spot somewhere you don't have to look very far yeah and uh, you land on your feet well and you don't uh yeah, you'll be fine but change is inevitable so you know moving through life learning to embrace change even even if you don't want it you can't change it. it's gonna happen yeah and uh that's interesting and i guess i embrace change a, pretty well yeah and, i would say you embrace change very well and, uh, but you did have, but, but, but you went through a time where you, where you really, it seemed like took a deep, big, big, long look at things. Yeah. We, we have talked about that before two or three years. And, you know, part of that was, uh, big, big life changes and being a homeowner to not a homeowner and owning land and not really owning anything except my, my goods and my dog and my truck, mm-hmm. and a little duck boat. And then, you know, things were like, Hmm. But what do I want to do next? How am I going to come out of this? And for me, it was just kind of, it, it took longer than I thought, mm-hmm. just doing relatively nothing, which is funny because I look at that and think, well, this is what everybody else does. God damn, <laughs> fucking boring. This is really boring, <laughs> yeah, <right>. man. <laughs> if I had bigger buck teeth, man, I would chew my wrist out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't get a good bite on that. Yeah, but it, but it's like seeing you now, just like reinvigorated. It's like you know, is that was that a recharging of the batteries, you know, or or uh, uh, almost like a uh, strategy before the second assault or something like that, where you just sort of got your feet underneath you. I don't know. I being separate from being separated from Marai now is honestly uh, liberating. Uh, not because I don't love this place. I love it more than I ever have. I have more ideas for it. I have more ambitions for it. I have more uh, bonsai as a as a practice, as a lifestyle, as a expression. It's all for me. It's uh, it, right now ten years in. We start the eleventh year. April fifteenth is when I closed on this place. <clears throat> Stronger now than ever before. But uh, one of the things about constantly being reminded of what's not being finished, done, accomplished, is is that it it started to become a big weight on my shoulders. And like you said, when the hamster wheel gets too big, things have got to, something's got to give. I didn't choose this as the, as the giving point or the area where there was some space to be gained, but, but in, in it, there's, there, you know, there's, there's lemonade to be had. I have in the past, I'm sure you know, referred to Mariah as a bit of a dairy farm with you because the cow's got to get milk twice a day. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah, right. You don't miss one ever. Right, right, right. yeah. <laughs> and Or uh, bad things happen. Yeah, but it, it's also clear that this is how you roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you weren't doing this and you were doing something else, it, different scenarios, but the same. It would be pushed the, to the, the same, limit. It would be pushed yeah. to the limit, yeah. And I, I understand that because I look at me, I... I think that you kicked my ass in that world, but uh, I'm kind of the same way. Ton of shit going on. I, I learned it from watching you. I, I need, I need different things. You know, it's yeah. I like, I like a lot of different things. Yeah. And so much of what I do though is seasonally. You know, I, you know, I just finished a couple of months of duck hunting, and then a month at the trap line, which had been planned. I hadn't done it in years. Now I'm looking ahead, and I was just telling somebody yesterday. It's like I'm booked out until middle of July. I don't really come up for air until, yeah, 
after the spring trips are done. That's what you said. You're like, hey, listen, Eve asked me if I do a podcast. I don't have a free day in March. And it was like, <laughs> fuck, man, that's awesome. Kind, kind of awesome. That's and, pretty awesome. And, and they're fun things too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do have a day where I have to see the doctor. That's not going to be so much fun, but uh, I, you know, only a few people will see me cry. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> going to Texas to chase, chase sheep next week for a, I'm going, oh, I, I had dinner last week with uh, Adam and uh, Jonathan Cross for the first time. I never right. sat down with him. I had a great, unbelievably good conversation with that guy. I didn't really know anything about him. And we were talking about different things and he's really art. He's got a lot of artists that inspire him. Mm-hmm. And he said, where are you going? Uh, I said, uh, I'm going to El Paso. And then I'm driving east for five or six hours. He says, you know where? And I think, Marfa, Marfa. Oh yeah, God, there's a huge art installation there. And there's like all this crazy modernistic art there. And it's like, huh. No, he is from that part of the country. Yeah, he is. Well, and Marfa's also famous. Yeah, uh, it did not know. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they have some wild Moroccan sheep running around in the mountains doing whatever they want. Oh, interesting. Just got free. It's wow. I know it's wrong, Texas, right? Texas is uh <laughs> Texas is a whole different universe. Yeah. Whole different universe. <clears throat> so I guess uh yeah, I'm just looking forward to it. This is super affordable. It's gonna be wow. fun. I'm gonna be out there and and this is serious West Texas boondocks too, right? Yeah. 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 I looked on it on the map a little bit. Sick. Yeah, that is scrub country. That's interesting. What what ranch owner ever thought this would be a good place to settle down and raise a cow? Seriously. It kept going west. That's going to be hot. Probably it's going to be warm there now. That's going to be hot. Although, you know, I heard something just a few days ago that that cold spell that they had all the problems with, they, they ranch a lot of exotic wildlife there and tens of thousands of uh, black buck and impalas and other temperate species just froze. Yeah, it's, and a, it's a landscape of oh, geez. thousands and thousands of animals. Unbelievable. I didn't <clears> even <throat> think about that. I didn't it's the uh implications of that cold front and, and the impact that it had on North America was that was serious shit right there. Somebody oh, a, a guy that I went fishing with, he's got a house in Pacific City and his rupper decided he was gonna re rip it before the big windstorm and blew the uh, sheeting off and dropped five inches in his house. Oh, it, it's toast. It's a total gut. Oh. But he was saying <clears throat> he can't get a hold of his insurance adjuster because with the windstorm we had with Texas, with hurricanes, the insurance companies were declaring this was the single biggest disaster for them because there were so many things in different parts of the country at one time. Mm. Trying to find an insurance adjuster or, or a, a contractor to rebuild your house. Yeah, good luck. It's it's way out. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about it. Oh, and the fires. Yeah, it's it just one thing after it's another. It's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. It's a it's an interesting time. Um. So anyway, yeah, we got it sidetracked. We're here to talk about deciduous trees, not yeah, about, not the, about at Texas and goats. Best bases and bonsai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, okay. Well, I'm glad that you reoriented because I was really going down that track, but but I'll pull back because I think. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and one of the questions that's come up that I wanted to ask you about from your observations, you've grown a lot of the horn beams, you've grown all of the maples or a lot of the maple, not all of the maples, but a lot of the primary maples and stuff. You have this notion of growing on a tile, this notion of Im- Im- impeding downward growing roots. Are there deciduous species that don't, that don't abide by or respond well 
to the tile, the shallow root system, the broader base. Because when I met you, your strategy in the field is I'm going to grow a good base. That's yeah. that was what you did, and and a lot of other things came with it. But the bases that you cultivated were the best. Korean hornbeams are a tough one. Yeah, they grow shitty little stringy roots. You cut cut the tap root off to get those little fine hairs, and you get three or four, and they come out like spaghettis, and mm-hmm. they're slow growing and. I, I like a good, uh, who doesn't like green hornbeams, but they are the toughest yeah. in the deciduous trees. There were some, trying to think Do they of, need roots going down? Because this is one thing that I find in a bonsai container is, you know, in terms of the soil mass under the trunk, you you take completely clear out a maple, you completely clear out a stewardia, you completely clear out a beech, no problems. You can't ever completely clear out a hornbeam or you got big problems. Interesting, because they were a finicky tree that were would die easily. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about cedar trees. Uh, the Atlas cedars want to die. Um, hemlocks, tricky. Those, I would absolutely pick out hornbeams in general and the Korean hornbeams for sure as being the toughest to grow a good big plate root base on. Mm-hmm. That big tapered wide thin nabari. Mm-hmm. And it's also one thing to have a nice, let's say a, a three inch trunk with a a 10 inch nabari. It's nice when it's only two inches thick rather than eight inches thick, like yeah. on a, on a, that hedge maple, because now it's a more manageable tree. The hedge maple looks awesome, but it's a, it's a beefy thing. It's yeah. heavy. Yeah. When you look at those olive trunks and, and touch one of them, that's like picking up iron. Yeah. Those, those suckers are so heavy. And so the thinner you can get it, just the more manageable it is, the better it is. Um, European beech were slow to get developed and go, but once you got them moving, they turned into some incredible nabari too, but they were always a little bit thicker, um, not not like a hedge maple. They were just a longer-term tree mm-hmm. in general, and Korean hornbeams are absolutely long-term. It took forever to, to get one of those guys to trunk up. Did you ever, did you ever grow Japanese beech? Yes. Mm-hmm. Equally and- slow. And did you find the the European beach to be stronger than Japanese beach or vice versa? Oh, yeah. The Japanese beach were way weaker. Were they? Yeah. Their tops were much easier prone to uh, shade die out. Uh Uh-huh. They were just, they they reminded me of a delicate finicky species. They were expensive to purchase and hard to find. And they were, yeah, I, I stopped growing them. Although you could sell them all day long. Comparatively, but you know, that was probably because I had a thousand of this and a thousand of that and 50 of those. Yeah. And everybody always wants what they can't have or what's seems scarce. Sure. So I, those results are uh, unpredictable. I don't know that. If you had a thousand of them, yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't be that big a deal. And when you, I remember you talking about larch when you used to grow larch. You grew larch on a tile as well, right? Mm-hmm. And when you used to grow larch, you said something about Japanese larch versus European larch in terms of the durability and strength and growth rate and stuff in the field. Which one of those was stronger for you? Do you remember? Japanese. Were they? Uh, Japanese have the, the, the orange-reddish stem, correct? Yes. And the European has the yellow. Yes. Uh-huh. Or the gold. Um, they grew equally, I would say the strength was the same. The Japanese larch just always had a, 
a more natural beauty and elegance to them and better limbs. Mm-hmm. Um, European larch felt more like timber trees. A little, clun- little clunky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I love everything about a Japanese larch. When you prune them, when you touch them, they smell good. When you, di- yeah. they grow big. And I, I know that I've mentioned this too, that anybody that I've ever been around that was a nursery man, there's some things you grow just really well and there's some other things you struggle with. And the guy right across the road could do really well with those and struggle with your your best stuff. I don't know what that is, but it's a re, it's a recurring theme. Mm-hmm. wasn't just It wasn't just me. Um, and you, if you talk to nurserymen, uh, they would all they, they would say, "Yeah, you know, we we do these really well, and we struggle with those, so we don't mess with them very much." Mm-hmm. Um, Larch were my one of my two two or three favorites for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Larch. You had a knack for Larch. It's interesting. I don't know if you looked at the Larch in the garden. I saw no. the one you were working on in the shop when we came in. That looked like a field tree. All, all of my larch are from you, except for one. One is a collected larch from the northeastern United States. Other than that, all the larch are, that are here are from you. In fact, in fact, uh, there are some of the biggest larch that I have were your derelict larches that you didn't want anymore. And I was like, why? Well, I can't let you burn that because you're very free and clear and happy about burning things that you didn't find <laughs> a, to value, right? I, you should know I love to say that to watch people freak out a little bit too. Yeah. Well, that, that's a reaction getter. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But that's, that's also a part of nursery culture. It is. To, to, to rid yourself of uh, a financial time and resource draw that's not going to bear fruit. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something that you're more accustomed to than probably most bonsai people think that that, you know, that, that doesn't, that Heresy. doesn't jive. That's like, that's like <laughs> the antichrist, the bonsai, uh, is to burn a tree. But, but, um, yeah, I, I have, and it's always such a shame after the fact you had hundreds, if maybe not even, you might've even had thousands of large in the field that you could walk through and, what I've recognized about larch is every single one of them can be a good tree, you know? And it's like, and now who, who grows larch? Now, where do you get larch? Without Randy Knight growing larch, no larch exists. And everybody all of a sudden understands larch better now than ever before. And you can't find a larch. Are there no larch growers out there? There's no larch growers out there. I bought, I, I went down to Tom Roberts' place and I bought the last of the larch that you had given him. I bought them all. I said, I'll take all the larch. because you can't get them anymore and they were awesome after having spent that time in the field tom did a great job with them uh but those are these are all the things that like wow hindsight being what it is you know and also it's one of the it's also one of the unfortunate aspects of, of of time and resource limitation because to take 200 of your larch out of the field and grow and develop those 200 larch over you know five six Eight years as bonsai subject, man. You need two hundred pots. You need the soil. You got to prune them, wire them. They need a lot of attention, uh, multiple times over the spring season. You got to shade them in the summertime, like a facility to do that. But but when I see what has come from the 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 few larch that I still have from you, uh, it's like God. That's a worthy endeavor. That's a worthy endeavor. But I see the same thing with the hedge maple. You know, I see the same thing uh, with the black pines that you grew, and it's just like. And, and somehow Japan figured this out. Somehow the hierarchy of the system, uh, the, the super specific um, tunnel vision that is uh, promoted 
I think as a as a way of life or a lifestyle in that culture, you have people that just grow seedlings to the best of their ability and they pass them on and somebody grows them in this specific shape in the field to the best of their ability. Uh, somebody just produces junipers and colanders that are going to be shoheen sized trees and that's all that they do and they do it really you know that kind of striated culture exists there here it's that's not that's not how we are it's not who we are it's not it's not what we do uh it's not in our mentality or our dna or our cultural uh influence to be that way but but not having those resources you know North American bonsai culture in my mind starts to become more reflected and represented by those facilities that exist. There's no more Telperian farm. You know, Scott's pine of that scale are never going to be available again unless somebody else decides to grow them with that kind of quality and caliber. That was more than black pine. I feel like the Scott's pine were the Telperian. What, what was the pinnacle of Telperian's capacity, right? Okay. Uh, I didn't know that, but interesting to hear. I, I do. I mean, wh- who else? Where else do you get a good beefy trunk, trunked up sylvestris in North America? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Black mind. pines exist, but it's like where else would you get a larch? Where else would you get a hedge maple? I think your larch and hedge maple. You had a lot of other really, really good, beautiful pieces, but like those two things were like Randy Knight's wheelhouse right there. Hmm. And I, I love to grow. Interestingly. Those are two of my favorite trees and, uh, for whatever reason, sage elms. Yeah. And so there's 300 of those. And well, there's a couple hundred of those in my yard too. Yeah. And, uh, this year I'm going to branch out. I, for sure, I'm going to take a bunch of cork bark. I'm, I'm tired of the sages because again, this has been too long, too many. And I, all of a sudden I'm fascinated with cork barks. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, so where do you see the future in there's a deciduous push right now? Is it all encompassing or are there two or three highlights? Um, I, I think that there is a general curiosity and, and hunger for knowledge around deciduous because it feels to me, at least in my experience, engaging with deciduous again, that this was, and I think what ended up happening is you had these, you had these main lines of bonsai species. You had Japanese black pine, you had shimpaku juniper, you had white pine. And then suddenly, you know, we have the Rocky Mountain juniper, we've got the ponderosa pine, the lodgepoles, the limbers, and you see this like variety happening. And those, the variety of those conifers without imports being available, our native North Americans were, you know, have really been explored a lot in the past 10 years. There's been a lot of time put into it. There's a lot of been a lot of evolution. There's been a lot of information, imagery, all of that stuff put out. I think people, my, my guess is people started saying, well, what about, that's interesting. What about deciduous? You know, what about broadleaf trees? And, and when you start thinking about it, you know, the horned beams, the maples, the beaches, but then you get into the potentias, you get into the stewardias, you get into, um, you know, these obscure species that nobody's ever utilized before. And, and, and suddenly there's, there's dabble d- dribbles of information coming in. And I think people are saying, you know, we want, we want to know more about that. And I don't see it going anywhere. I, I, th- I think with the recognition that there is a higher level of information to approach conifers with, there's a high, higher level of information to approach deciduous with. And I think that's where it's coming from right now. So where does the future lie? Um, 
I would say in the future lies in probably a more secure capacity to make a living growing trees. Interesting, because if you were to ask me right now, I'd say if you're going to grow, field grow bonsai trees in America, it better be a labor of love first, not, <clears throat> there's a way better, there's dozens of better options for making a living. I don't think that I don't think that changes. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that I'm not saying that somebody's going to grow go grow deciduous trees and be and be rich, right? But you did the field cuz you loved it, not because it ever afforded you the capacity to 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 really it didn't really make financial sense. It did not. I hope that it would. Yeah. Uh and it didn't. Yeah. And 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 Chris, you know, like Talperian took 20 years before it broke even. Okay. Didn't really make financial sense. No. Uh my my hope would be that it makes financial sense at some point, you know, that it makes financial sense for somebody to invest their, their time in the kind of time it takes, which is significant. I mean, how old was your field? Mm, the field ran uh, from 98, 96 until uh, we pulled out in 2014. So, yeah, you know, we're talking t- roughly 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I was constantly adding and, taking out sections and trying to replant. That, that is another thing that uh, to be aware of, that you can't just put a thousand trees in the ground one year and sit back on your laurels and wait for those to mature. You got to keep planting. You got to, yeah. you know, it's like anything else. You've just got to keep that system. It's like raising chickens. You need new babies every year, right? Yeah. And because uh, bad things are going to happen and some aren't going to work out. And, you know, like we were just talking about the Texan animals, we... Gardeners and tree growers want to grow temperate Mediterranean type trees in in temperate zones. And when you're in the field and you all of a sudden get uh, two weeks of five degree weather, which is uncommon here, whole lots of things die mm-hmm. or they die to the roots. And and so you could have, uh, I remember that happened in 1998 with a bunch of miniature plant kingdom trees. I had all these azaleas and exotic yeah. little Mediterranean things. Like total loss, devastating. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> how, why? We haven't had that kind of cold since the seventies, and and here it is. Boom! Damn, got it. Um, that's gonna happen. Yeah, different kind of bugs. You know, we're becoming more and more aware. Little buddies, the root aphids, uh, beetles. There's always going to be new introduced pests that are on the move um, that attack specific things. Um, so variety is good. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention earlier, uh, European hornbeams, another one of my favorites that grow really fast, really well. They're a little bit blocky and chunky. They don't get a lot of natural nuance, but they're better than a hedge maple as far as getting limbs to come out and wire. And, mm. um, I, I like those. Mm. I, I, and I would be the first one to say, I like things that you see results more quickly with putting uh, Japanese uh, beach in the ground and waiting 20 years for them to build that, that doesn't happen quick enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that would be the same for almost everyone. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Japanese maples, I like them, but they always seemed a little bit tender to me. Um, they, they didn't handle my heavy handed field growing as well mm-hmm. and slow, but you know, beautiful refined Japanese maple is is impressive. You know what? As I'm talking, I realized I did better with things that had heavy trunks, heavy base, more impact 
mm-hmm. the, the tiny little delicate things. Um, that was never me, I guess. See, but you say that, and then you had, you had some of the best dwarf stewardia uh, that have ever been grown in North America. Those turned out well, didn't they? So I will, you know, I just want to, I just want to go ahead and like, you know, acknowledge that, well, you know, I I appreciate that. I respect that. But I, I, and I think in general, you're probably right. Yeah. But, but then you had, then you had those stewardia, which are, I think some of the more delicate trees. Well, I, I mean, they could, they could beef up like a beach, but, but those, those were just really beautifully uh, elegant and not uh chunky and stout and i right. yeah so and that could just be that i just don't think of myself as dainty yeah i would say <laughs> most people probably would agree with you you're, the impression of rainy night is not that you're a delicate flower <laughs> probably not i'm a hot house orchid <laughs> there you go yeah 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 climate um, control is not something that that you demand so so the reality is yeah i'm Probably looking for a field, possibly even this year, because, uh, oh, I, I didn't finish the story after I planted all those trees super tight together. Mm-hmm. My neighbor's father came over from Texas. He says, you're going to have to take some of those trees out of there. They're helping close together. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, I, my plans are to take them out. I, I, I don't have very much room. I'm, I'm, I've got, what, 20 feet by... 35 feet and I got 400 <laughs> trees. He's <in> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, dude, I got to pack them in. <laughs> this is my best son. And he said, why are they all crooked? Well, you know, because I put them on a 45 and they'll grow towards the sun. Why would you do that? His only comprehension was like, we grow, we grow trees to be straight, buddy. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. You want to do what to it? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to use that for again? You're going to cut it and torture it and bend it? Right. What? And I, I could just see him and he's like, Man, that's a weirdo. You're living next to a tweaker. <laughs> you're, you're, you better keep an eye on that Maybe neighbor. You, burn, you had to think about burning him out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Call the city on him. <laughs> so, that's yeah, a, I mean, there's stuff coming out. And that's from exciting. the Telperian thing, I saved uh, 100 little black pines that are 10 or... They're probably five or seven years old and one gallons, and the same with a bunch of Japanese maples that are just primed to be cleaned up and put on a tile in the ground and grow them for five years. Mm-hmm. And that, those could be, they could absolutely turn into something. Mm. You just need more time and a, a more robust growing system for a while. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's super exciting. Be, kind of. I find, <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, God, it's a sunny day. I should go out and do something. There you go. There it is. Yeah. 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 And you think, and, and so from your perspective, from your experience, almost 20 years in a field, you feel like, no, I, I, you feel good about how you'd approached it. Growing on a tile, the manner in which you handled it, uh, you would do it again the same way. Very similarly, mm-hmm. not as big a scale, you know, not 10,000 trees. Yeah. But uh, I would want them to be, I would want every tree to be a little bit different. You got standards and goals that you, you strive for, but I never, wiring trees in the field doesn't really work. Or it didn't for me. Mm-hmm. Not that it couldn't, but the people that did that or had luck with some crazy things were typically doing five of these or ten of these yeah. in their backyard, right? And yeah. they devoted unbelievable amounts of attention, which is more like a hobby thing, right? And and I get that and understand. That's what I'm doing with some of the trees in my yard now. Almost everything in the yard I planted in a matter that it can be dug up and sold as a bonsai later on mm-hmm. or my next house. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but to do significant numbers and be what I would call a, a, a grower. Um, if you're going to have a lot of diversity and by the way, I made way more mistakes than I did things well, but that was part of the learning curve. Mm -hmm. There were no books on how to do this. And I read everything that was, you could find in print and talk to everybody. There still aren't any books on how to you, do it. That's what's interesting about you, it. So you, you just do it, right? It's like yeah. so much of the other things we do, it's like, well, I, I want to do it. I'm going to just have to do it, right? I'll, I'll educate myself to the extent that I can, but at some point I just seem to be the decision maker and not everything will go well, but I like the ability. I, I, I remember, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm talking smack, but we would look at all those beautiful white pines in those Southern, uh, in Japan mm -hmm. when we were there in 08. Oh, down in Chicago. And yeah, yeah. They had those, they were all three to four feet tall with 12 inch bases and they came up and they all had some gentle movement and great limbs and, and they were gorgeous trees. If you saw one or two, but they're, 4,000 of them, yeah. 5,000 of them. It's like kind of the same. And, uh, that's, that's boring to me. Well, and it devalued every single one of them. That's, that's the other thing about like, that's what I've come to realize about a field and about, about the act of spending that time growing is the more diversity you create, the more value each piece has, you know, and you know that not all of them are going to be valuable in fact you know that a smaller percentage are going to be valuable and a larger percentage are going to be sort of moderate or maybe worthless yeah and it's like from that perspective how do you give a tree value you, you make it unique it's got to stand apart from the other trees uh, it's absolutely the same with collected trees that's why we, we like them right yep yep yeah you exactly. got one that looks different than the, the one next to it on the bench and the one that jimmy has in his yard yep um, one thing that I would do differently about a field is I would put sections in that people couldn't, couldn't cherry pick for mm -hmm. seven or eight years so that the best ones didn't get nailed out immediately. Yeah. Um, and this will sound harsh, but I have to assume that most of those trees are dead, right? Probably. Thousands of them have been sold and put in pots and are dead. Yeah. Um, which is good for the market, but you know, it comes at a cost too, because if, if somebody doesn't have success, will they revisit it again? I think most bonsai people will, um, to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, I try not to think about, and you probably have found a way to think about, hey, I sold that tree. I haven't heard any more about it. It's probably dead because almost always about water, right? Too much, too little. Yeah. You know, there's lots of other reasons, but I think that's the biggest one. So could you start over and start selling the same trees to same people and same quality? Probably. And the price has definitely gone up. Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I, I would assume. Yeah. There's a higher conscious awareness that oh, I just can't get one of these anywhere. Right. Um, and I think if I did that and, and the only reason that one of the big reasons that every year I think I was sold out of good stuff, but new things would come and everything got pruned most years. Um, was that there were so many, right? And at the end of the year though, you know, after five, after 10 years of picking, you could go down the rows of tridents and they just kept getting bigger, but not better. Mm -hmm. And so that's the time when you pull them out and you, ideally you've got other new stuff coming up, same species and you, you call the old yep. the stuff that a lot of time and energy to try and make it something, it's better to, to call it and move on and get fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, you can't save them all. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, you know, the, the, still, I think the most untapped genre 
that exists is is the broadleafed evergreen. I mean, uh, you're currently working with olives and and found some really spectacular um, pieces, but camellias, the purest that you gave me a long time ago that's up in my landscape is coming out to be a bonsai subject this, this spring. Yeah, because it's just too good. Uh, and and who has a good Pieris japonica? You know, doesn't exist in bonsai. I mean, I've, I'm sure somebody has them. Nothing like what that thing is. And and you start to think about Russian olive or any of the Eliagnus species because we have so many native to North America, the mahoganies, which are still definitely a challenge. The sagebrush, just just Artemisia in general, is a genre of tree that you know has so much potential. It is available. Um, I start looking in that direction, like the evergreen oaks across North America, you know, it's like the leucophyllum in Texas. Leucophyllum is, is a Texas sage is a incredible broadleaf evergreen tree that I've never seen done as bonsai. And we saw it in Israel when we were there. Remember the leucophyllum, the minty colored leaves and they flower red and the trunks naturally twisted. Ah, that's that's a native to Texas. Really? Yeah. Texans aren't doing anything with them. I've never seen a leucophyllum bonsai in my life in North America, and it's the Texas sage, native to North America. Interesting. Yeah. It, there is. So I didn't do the uh, black bag technique last year. Some of those collected oaks this year. If I collect them, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. But I found another type of tree over there, and I swear to God, I do not know what it is. It's got white bark. It naturally grows contorted. Horrible Nabari, um, super arid, little leaves, natural bones eye. I, I should, I, I've meant to cut one off and re-yank it out of the ground and take it to the extension agent and say, for God's sake, would you tell me what this yeah, is? What here's, is this? Here, here's a tree yeah, right. and here's one of their leaves. Right. And uh, I got to get to the bottom of that because, well, I, yeah, it's, it's like, okay, this is going to be a challenge, but this yeah. is worthy. Yeah. Um. Well, one of the nice things about citrus trees is you can, in relatively short order, with a lot of varieties, you can get a pretty good uh, trunk and root base on these things in a timely manner, right? Sure. Um, I know there's some guys in Portland that are going to are trying to get started with this, and I think they're going to try and do more of a always growing in containers and colanders and other things, which is more what I would call Asian inspired mm-hmm. and uh, a little more boutique, probably, boutique approach, yeah. And they'll, they'll probably be good at it, but it's not anything that would ever interest me. It would be, sure. it's too, too few, too precise. All your hopes in 20 trees. Yeah. It's like, I'd rather put a thousand in and see what we get. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I like the, you know what I liked about the field growing was mm. the uncertainty of what was going to come out. And at the end of every winter, you go out about this time and start looking. It's like, huh, I'll be damned. Look at that. That grew quite a and when you have that many trees, you know, sometimes you don't prune something for uh, one section for a couple, three years, especially if you're trying to build a uh, trunk. Um, and all of a sudden your black pines are 15 feet tall and you're out there cutting them with a chainsaw and breaking them down and it looks like hell. And there's a few scraggly limbs and needles and and especially the uh, scotch pine. Yeah. Uh, or the shore, uh, the shore pine. Mm-hmm. And uh, you come back next year and say, huh, well, yeah, a couple died, but. And 10 aren't going to be any good, but the other 70 look fucking awesome. Yeah. And this, now I'm onto something again. And, you know, then 
you're refine prune, re, doing refining pruning sometimes, and other times it's with big heavy loppers or a handsaw or your saws, whatever. And I'm not a proponent of sawzalls and stuff like that, but when you have a ton of stuff and it's hard wood, sometimes you got to do it. Yeah. Um, at least on that scale, and it was just me. And I actually didn't like to let other people prune my stuff because that was the joy, right? You probably, or that was Randy's type of styling was yep. clip and grow. Yeah. Well, and you were good at it and you were quick at it and, and, and you made interest with it. That was really, you know, people talk about, we get a lot of questions. How do you grow trees in the field? And it's like, listen, there's a million different ways. How, how, how do you even answer that question? How, how do you grow how do you trees in the field? Do it? Yeah, exactly. What, what is going to be your methodology? You know, as an individual, I mean, Telperian grew in grow bags and they cultivated roots for two or three years and, and, and then they, and then they injector fed you know, and, and, and you grew directly in the ground on tiles and, uh, and had a completely different methodology and, and the two, two products are, are, are completely different, you know, and, and both valuable, both, both interesting, entirely different. And it's mm -hmm. just like, yeah, that, that diversity of approach is something I think that's lacking in North America because there have been so few people that have taken on growing to a degree where you actually have a, a referential body a prolific body of work and being determined or passionate enough to weather weather the <laughs> majority of those storms you know like not many most people are going to be like i'll i'll go back to my desk job uh but but i think we need that i think we do need that um and i think there's a lot of knowledge to be to be developed there the uh guy that ran bonsai northwest john mm -hmm. um Last year, I, he, he dropped off some shimpaku that had been sold and they were going back east. And so and we had room on the truck for him. <clears throat> and he had wired those and he had done some pretty good field growing. I looked at his stuff and was like, oh yeah, you've done really well. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I was surprised because I, I, I knew that he was doing it and forgotten it and then that he was doing that and then never seen any of his product. It was very different. Um, it was a little bit more predictable. Mm -hmm. um, that didn't, but I looked at it and I thought, if you have extra of those, I'll, I'll buy some and set them here. Cause I know, I know they'll sell They're They're different from what I have. Yeah. And just like you have a lot of variety in my can yard, variety is an important thing. If all you had was junipers or only ponderosa pines, you're going to miss out on a lot of sales and people are going to be less interested. People love to come and, and window shop, if you will, wander around through all this and ooh and ah and touch yeah. things and say, what's this? Where'd that come from? Yep. And, uh, and watching your customers do that, I mean, it, it's invigorating too. It's like, okay, I'm doing something well. Yeah. And people like to think that they're doing well, right? Yeah. It's I totally agree. one of the things agree. that motivates me for sure. Yeah. You too. Yeah. I love it. And um, so when I, I looked at his field grown stuff, it's like, his was, I think that you could shorten the process if you had enough, not, not so many that you couldn't wire and prune and get a lot more individual attention to trees. That's just not how I roll. Mm -hmm. But if you were really wanted to do it, you'd have a hundred of this and a hundred of that. And you'd do whatever you were going to do and you were going to really manage them in the beginning. Um, in the field, the way I did it, if I wired something, uh, you would really have to suppress all the other growth because new shoots would come up around it and the wired limb always dies. Yeah. You lose that leader. And then you're almost like you set yourself back a year because I just didn't make the time to be on those trees while well, I was landscaping, raising a family and doing all the things that come with life. And so I found a way to do what worked for me. Right. 
which was a lot of other people come out and just be like, oh, that's just a field of crap, mm-hmm. field of junk. It didn't look like a traditional Japanese trident maple. And, and again, <laughs> and again, and, and one of the frustrating things for you was, man, I pour a lot of time in this and people just don't value it. And you stop field growing. And, and now the whole point of talking to you is like, <laughs> Hey man, I repotted this hedge maple and I can't, I've never found a better base. I've never seen a better base grown on a hedge maple or, you know, every larch in the garden is something that you grew. And now when you look at them as refined bonsai, it's like, there's nowhere else in North America that you can get this. And isn't that funny that a lot of those were leftovers, but they just They're, had a, an okay base, but girth and size. And it's like, I, ultimately it's like, it just seems wrong to throw that away. It seems wrong to throw it away. Nobody else is going to buy it. I'll take it. And you're like, all right, I'm going to burn it. Or, you know, g- give me a hundred bucks for it. And it's like, oh, a hundred bucks. I could do that. It's like 12 years old, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, and now like they're, they're pr- pretty awesome. And it's like, oh, okay. I need to, I need to tell Randy or at least talk to him about the fact that he could, he could, he could start field growing again and I wouldn't be upset about it. <laughs> and, and the fact that you're growing seedlings in your city plot tells me that they're and you have pigeons again. That was the that was really the moment that I was like, oh, I, I we might see a field come back in this in this lifetime. <laughs> I was just uh, the gal from that moved here from New York. I think her name is Diane. Diana. She she said, oh yeah, I, I'm gonna have to drive by your house again. He said, looks like there's a lot going on. It was pretty cool looking. And she says, anybody ever say hi or ask you about that? And I said, yeah, just last night at dark, a woman riding by on her bike. So I have to say, those are nice bones. Hey, what are you doing? Are you? And he said, yeah, it happens all the time. And and I love that, yeah. uh, you know, but I love to be outside and, and people will stop on the road sometimes, roll their window down and say, God, looks great. Keep doing it. <laughs> and then about every 10th person will stop by on the sidewalk and say, that looks great, but it's so much work. How do you, it's like, okay, you're not a gardener. <laughs> I understand it, but a kind word anyway. Yeah. But it's funny. Um, and that's one of the reasons she's, uh, I kind of like I, my location's not great. My yard's too small, but I like being around other people. Mm. I would not do as well as the hermit at the end of the road because I don't want to become the grumpy old man. Yeah. And you have total permission. If I become the grumpy old man, come up and hit me alongside the head with a two by four and say, <laughs> it's because you're a grumpy old man. <laughs> right. Get up. Stop, stop bleeding and stop crying. Or stop I'm being hit an you asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first place that you had was right in town, similar similar to the place you have now, a little bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like, that had a lot of magic there. There's a lot yeah. of, there's, there's some mojo there. And I had fun down at this house too. Yeah. In fact, when we were coming by it, I said, this is the other house I rebuilt. Oh, I look at this house every day when I come in. It's like, it used to be really pretty. Yeah. The, the yard is- Big uh, oak and- I kind of, down here on Blaha, I kind of want to stop and ask them, you know what, give me a hundred bucks and I'm going to prune up all those pines and I'm not going to, you're going to have to cart it away. But I'll work in here for four hours just to clean it up because it yeah. could be beautiful again. It was amazing. The big cedrus got hammered by the storm. Saw broken. that. Yeah. Big Japanese maple is pretty epic though. Yeah. You got a knack. God, grow some trees. It's fun. How about it, huh? Uh, well, I'm on. You, you'll have to swing by sometime and you'll see right along the sidewalk. I, I gotta got to come like, by. I, I, I need got to make like it out eight of those giant, they're 20 year old olive stumps that are uh, three feet across and they come up to about six inches like this. They're, they're, they're like little volcanoes of fissures and growth. They're all the things that I I learned about from those guys in Israel. Mm-hmm. When I just happened to say, well, how do you do this? Ah, I wonder why they don't do that in America. And you and I have talked about it before. It's like, 
Well, I'll it's do it. It's there. It's there. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, man. Free is a very good price. It's, uh, it's good to sit down. Thanks for making the time. Yeah. No, I had fun. Yeah. Clearly, you can see I had fun. Yeah. yeah a little bit enjoyable. cold. It is chilly up here. It's going to feel nice and warm when we go out, though. That's the advantage. Yeah. Well, it was good to be back. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. We'll catch up again. Bye. Bye.